Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. We're covering our Sunday School lessons. This will be the one for November the 7th, 2021. And um, I'm glad that you are with us and praise the Lord for truth and the ability to study truth, to know truth, and by the grace of God to even be able to comprehend it. We live in a world that is so confused, so mixed up, and um, instead of being angry about that, we ought to have sorrow in our hearts because there are people all out in, in the world, and I mean the world as a system, and uh, some of this stuff they really, truly, passionately believe, and that's because they are deceived. And to them, the Word of God and the, the truth that we know, John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your word and your word is truth. It just doesn't make any sense to them. And whenever we look at them and we wonder what is wrong with them, we have to stop and say, what is wrong with them is what is wrong with us. It's called depravity. And except for the Lord's grace and his calling and election and giving us uh, a new spirit, a new nature and his spirit residing within us, we wouldn't understand anything either, and we would be as bad as they are. And uh, while sinners may go to different degrees, not every person who is lost is uh, pro-transgender, for example, but they're just as lost and just as deceived. And so we need to uh, think about that and realize whenever we have a chance to open the Word of God and understand even the smallest most basic foundational truths about God, that's not by accident. That is given to us by the Spirit of God. And we certainly should thank God for that. You know, another thing we ought to thank God for is uh, there are some places where we would be doing exactly what we're doing now and be put in jail for it or maybe even executed for it. You, you know, we need to remember to pray for persecuted brothers and sisters all around the world. Because what we've experienced for almost 250 years in America is not the norm. It's the exception, not the rule. And so uh, we need to be thankful for our freedoms and we need to pray for those people who do not have those freedoms and just think of the suffering that they are going through. And I try to put myself in their shoes as much as I can. What would it be like if I were arrested for simply preaching the Bible? And then that meant that my family was not provided for. That meant that uh, I would be separated from them. Can you imagine what these people are going through and what their families and their churches are going through? And um, some people say we're going to experience that in America. And to that, I would use a Pauline phrase and say, God forbid, because I don't want that. And I'm sure you don't want that either. And that's a reason not only to pray for persecuted believers, but oh, how we need to pray for our nation. God is obviously the only hope that we have. And we pray for him to intervene. And one of the things that I think about when I think about our country is what it says in Romans, where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. And so we need the grace. And grace, remember, whether it's you individually or whether it's our nation, grace is never something that we earn or deserve. Grace is the undeserved favor of God. And so uh, I agree with the song 
that says God shed his grace on thee, speaking of our nation, because we certainly don't deserve his blessings. And then um, I think about this as we learn the word and as we learn truth, it was never designed that we should be like a big reservoir of truth, just filling it up, filling up on it and stocking up on it and knowing it and uh, never having any kind of an outlet. That would make you like the Dead Sea. And we don't want to be like that. We want fresh coming in, but we also want fresh going out. And what is fresh to you as you learn it? You ought to be sharing it with somebody and that can help disciple them. Maybe you can share it with a lost person. That may be the seed or the watering that brings to a harvest. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so uh, anytime we can get the word of God to lost people, that's a good thing, right? But also as you share it with your spouse, as you share it with friends and neighbors, even as you share it with your children, there's something about putting it out that makes you want to receive more. Now, if you're just kind of fat and sassy on the word and you know so much and you never really give it out, you're probably going to lose your appetite for it. And uh, we don't want to do that ever, ever. And so we want to commit what we've learned, as Paul told Timothy, commit it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also and to build up other people in the faith. So thank you for doing that. And teachers, you don't realize just how big your job is. And uh, one of the great things about Sunday school, gathering in small groups, is that uh, you can actually do more of the discipleship, 2 Timothy 2, 2 things, because you can dialogue with people. And uh, that's very difficult, if not impossible, to do when you're preaching in front of a large group. And, you know, the other thing, too, Hebrews 10, 24 says that we are to consider others and we are to uh, consider how we can, and, and the word here sometimes, some translations say provoke, some say stimulate, some say to um, encourage others to love and to good deeds, not forsaking the gathering of ourselves as is the manner of some, right? Remember that verse? But you have to put 24 and 25 together because simply attending church is not anywhere near what verse 24 is talking about. And I actually think that verse 24, that considering others and stimulating or encouraging, I can say that, to love and good deeds is more done and more of a command for small group meetings than it is the large gathering of the church. What do I mean by that? You can be sitting in a Sunday school class and something can be said and somebody in your class feels free to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, what did you just say? Repeat that. They're probably not going to do that in church. If there's some word that you use that they say, I'm not sure that's the right word. Help me understand what you're saying. They're probably not going to do that in church, but they would do that in Sunday school. When somebody says, um, I'm not sure I understand what that means. Can you go further into it? You can do that easier in a small group setting, uh, like a Sunday school class, more than you can in um, 
big church or something like that. And so I think that that uh, exhortation in Hebrews is as much an exhortation to don't skip Sunday school, don't skip the small groups, don't skip the fellowship times, the discipleship times, because those are where the rubber meets the road, as we say, and that's where things can really get drilled into our minds and into our hearts, but they can also be made more clear because we have the freedom to respond and to ask questions. And so teachers, what you were doing here is very, very, very important. And I just want to say once again that I appreciate you. Um, these lessons for November, we're actually recording them a little bit early. I'm going to be recovering from surgery. Maybe I'm speaking too soon. I sure hope I'll be recovering from surgery. Otherwise, this will be a little bit creepy. But um, I wanted to get this done early so that our teachers would have them. And for those of you who watch these because you couldn't go to Sunday school, you're traveling, you're sick or something like that. Uh, thank you for doing this and keeping up with all of this. All of this. this is a great ministry of our church. And we all want to grow together in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well, enough of that. Let's move on and say the uh, answer the question. How is the word of God to be read and heard? How is the word of God to be read and heard? I think that the, uh, again, the easy answer is, uh, we might say regularly, you know, we might, some people might say it needs to be read in the morning when everything is fresh. You know, I actually read a guy that said that you needed to get up early in the morning to pray and read the scripture. And he actually made the statement, this is not verbatim, but it's pretty close. That after 4.30 in the morning, every hour after that, your prayer loses some of its power. Well, I hope not. I hope not. Because uh, when people say, give the Lord the best of your day, for me, it ain't 4.30 in the morning. I'm more of a night owl, and I think better at midnight than I do at 4 or 5 or 6 in the morning. And um, I prayed sometimes when I would uh, try to do that when I was younger. I read that book, and I thought I'm going to try that because I wanted power in my praying, right? And so I did that, and I prayed some really... <laughs> really, really weird, weird prayers because my mind would kind of wonder and I'd be half asleep while I was saying those things. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with praying and reading your Bible in the morning. I recommend it. It's a good thing to do. But, um, you know, you, you find that the people that walk with God, they didn't just do it in the morning. David said in the Psalms, at morning and at noon and at night, I will seek you. Uh, it's always a good time to pray and read your Bible and give God what is best and uh, take that and put it into who you are. And uh, certainly all of us could be a little bit more disciplined and diligent about things, but understand kind of how you were made up. And I do better in the evenings than I do in the mornings. So the major thing I'm going to do may be at night most of the time instead of in the morning just because of the way that I'm made up. And not to mention some of those people that write things like what I just quoted, those people didn't have electricity. And so they would go to bed maybe at six or seven o'clock. Well, if I, if I could do that, 
then it might not be any problem to be up at 4.30 in the morning. But I don't, you don't, we don't. And uh, thank God for electricity and things like that that keep us going after dark. And uh, that also means maybe we adjust our schedules a little differently. So um, let, let's be careful about just the cliche answers. And let's be careful about just taking what somebody says at face value. And let's make sure that they're biblical and make sure that they fit with the way we are wired and made and that we really are giving God our best. And so reading the Bible in the morning is a fine thing if you can do that. And most, most can, you know, uh, you know, start your day off, feed on the word of God, at least some, and then maybe do your uh, bigger study and be a little bit more um, diligent and deeper at another time of day, if that's what you need to do. And I think uh, to quote the Nike commercial, my concern would be just do it, just do it. It doesn't really matter so much when you do it. Some people would say, uh, I took Greek and Hebrew, and those guys that taught that, they might say, not only do it in the morning, but read it in the original languages. You know, there are very few people that could do that. I had a pastor once that I uh, was doing music in the church, and I got through with the song service, and he got up to preach. And I'm following along in his Bible, uh, in my Bible, and I could follow him along, but it was different. I wonder, what translation is he using? <laughs> Went up to the pulpit, and he was using nothing but a pure Greek uh, translation. He was, he was freely translating it as he preached. That's how good he was. Well, uh, not all of us can do that. And so uh, that, that kind of puts it out. And besides, people died and were burned at the stake to get the Bible put into English and German and other things like that. The Roman Catholic Church hated that idea. They wanted it in Latin so that only they could read and only the priests could interpret it. And they didn't want it in the hands of the common man. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not opposed to modern translations of the Bible. Now, like you, if you're my age, I grew up and cut my teeth on the King James and in Sunday school and different things like that, we learn King James. So when I say John 3:16, I'm always inclined to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but uh, have everlasting life. And it does kind of you know, to quote uh, Shakespeare, it falleth trippingly off of the tongue. But um, it's not really a language and a grammar that we always understand. And if you doubt that, listen to somebody pray when they try to use King James English. They rarely, rarely get it right because the grammar is a little bit different and the words are different. And I still um, kind of wonder what superfluity of naughtiness is. Uh, so reading it in another translation, a fresher translation, can be a good thing. Not to mention, I went to New King James back in about 1985 because I noticed some of these people that really pounded their fist on the pulpit and advocated for nothing but the King James Version would usually spend about 30 minutes explaining what the King James Version meant, and my New American Standard had it right there. And the new King James had it right there. And so there were some practical things in all of that. So no, I don't think you need to read it in Greek or Hebrew, but I do think you need to use a good translation. 
And if you have questions about that, we can talk about it. No, the message is not a good translation. The Living Bible is not a translation at all. And so uh, you need to get something that actually is a translation and a good one. But um, the answer that they give is to read it with diligence. Well, that, that would be, yeah, that, that's a really good thing to think about. Uh, preparation. And what do they mean by that? You know, far too many times we read the Bible without any idea of what we're getting ready to read. And so sometimes some Bible knowledge, some Bible application, uh, maybe uh, we, we taught a course here one time years ago in hermeneutics to try to pe teach people how to, the art and science of biblical interpretation. So preparation like that can certainly help you. And also they say, and prayer, as you pray through this, as you pray for God to give you understanding. And it's not always just prayer before you read it, but it's prayer while you're reading it. Lord, help me to understand this. This makes no sense to me. This seems like it is too repetitive. And there are some things in here that are just, you know, kind of going over my head. Well, pray about it. The Lord understands the word and he wants you to as well. And they say we do this with diligence, preparation and prayer so that we may accept it with faith and that we may, here, here's a big one, store it in our hearts, store it in our hearts and practice it in our lives. I don't know where we got the idea that Bible memorization is only for children. And you know, we tend to stress that and every church I've ever been in kind of stress that it's good. Put the word in your heart. Thy word, there we go with King James again, right? Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Certainly is true. Absolutely true. But hey, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, it's true for you just as much as it is for the little urchins that run around your, uh, your house. You need to learn the word of God as well. I would encourage you, you may memorize slower and you may, may memorize less. Uh, Jesus wept, there's a good starter for you. But uh, memorize scripture, try to hide it in your heart, but certainly live by it because we don't wanna be just hearers of the word or readers of the word, we wanna be doers. Why did uh, the Bible say, don't be just simply hearers of the word. Back in the day when the Bible was written, people didn't have copies of the Bible. They couldn't download it on their phones. They didn't have books, a codex, they would call that, of the Bible. They were in scrolls and they were kept in the synagogues. And a lot of them couldn't read anyway. So they were hearers of the word. But what's our excuse? We've got so many copies of the Bible and it is available at our fingertips. Think about it. We ought to be the most biblically literate generation in the history of the church. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out, I like this translation, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? Anytime you see the word that in the middle of a verse, it's going to tell you the purpose clause. What is the purpose of the word of God and all those things that are said about it? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's talk about this and think about the word of God. Some things we need to um, understand and need to constantly have reinforced in our mind. Number one. The word of God 
is perfect. All scripture is breathed out by God. The word breathed out, um, I think the King James says inspired by God. Uh, the Greek word is theo neustos. Theo is God and neustos to breathe, to breathe. And in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the word for spirit in the Old Testament, it's ruach. It's the same for breath, uh, spirit or wind. And in the New Testament, it's uh, pneuma. And uh, that's, this is a form of that word. It's breathed out by God. In Psalm 119, verse 160, it says, The sum of your word, the sum is the total, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So we talk about the unchangeable word of God. And it's unchanging not only in the fact that it's going to last, but unchanging in the fact that it is truth. The God of truth cannot breathe error. And so you can trust God's word. In fact, you can trust all of it. You can trust all of it. And God speaks fully and finally through his word. Everything we need to know is in the Bible. So if somebody comes up to you and they say, I've got a new revelation, I've got a new testament, a new New Testament, like the Mormons say, of Christ. Or somebody says, um, I was reading this thing in the Bible and I had a dream and the dream goes further than the Bible does. Um, don't go there. Don't go there. The word of God is the final authority. It's the full revelation of God. Someone said one time, if you want to hear God speak, read the word. And if you want to hear him speak audibly, read it aloud. And uh, we've got to take everything back to the scripture. And that's why I've told you over the 25 years I've been here, constantly check me out. You are not required to believe what I have to say. You are required to believe what God has to say. And uh, how do you find out what God has to say and what's accurate? You find it out through the Bible. So uh, check me out. Check me out and learn it for yourself. Uh, number two, the word of God, we're told in these verses, is profitable. Have you ever read through the genealogies in the word of God and wondered, what in the world is that here for? Well, I used to do the same thing. How, why do I care who begat whom? And um, then I found out later on, well, that would be very important. It's kind of like... Um, I think about reading obituaries at funerals and it has all of these names and all of these people that I don't know and nobody else knows. And I remember L.D. Baker before he died told me not to do that at his funeral. And I said, why not? And he goes, because they know who they are. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. And of course, he was funny as he could be. And um, but some people like to have that read because it's important to them to hear the family connections. You know, those genealogies, they would be important to you if your name was in them. If uh, that was your aunt or uncle or grandfather written in them, it would be very important to you. But there's something else that we need to think about. The uh, genealogies also give us like the genealogy of Christ. That is giving us the credibility why we should believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Because that uh, genealogy is tracing uh, his lineage all the way down so that you can see he fulfills the biblical requirements. It also does something else. Have you ever tried to look at the names of the people that are in there? And granted, there are some of them we don't really know. 
but there are plenty in there that we do know. And when you look at the genealogy of Christ, for example, and you see Rahab the harlot, now that's very interesting to me. You see Ruth the Moabitess. Well, that's very interesting that people like that would be in the bloodline of Christ. And when I look at those things, then all of a sudden the genealogy becomes profitable to me. When I look and I see in the Old Testament some of the regulations that they have, and I go, wow, why did they have to do that? Good night. Until I read them and I realize it was to expose sin and man's inability to keep the law of God, which should have had the Pharisees in the New Testament on their knees and on their faces before the Son of God, praising Him and honoring Him and receiving Him as Lord and Savior. The Old Testament was never given so that people could feel good about their salvation, never to feel good about their righteousness because their righteousness would be as filthy rags, of course. It was designed to expose sin and show them their need for grace. It's all profitable, Old and New Testament. And Jesus even said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you think you find eternal life, but the scriptures testify of me. And so you can read through even the Old Testament and you know what you're going to find? Grace. You're going to find Jesus. You're going to find pictures of redemption all the way through it. And so all of it is profitable. So that's number two. The word of God is profitable. Read the parts you don't understand and read the parts where you have to just look at it and say, I have no idea what that means, Lord, but I thank you that you do. And I thank you that your word is profitable. There'll come a day when you'll get it. But sometimes when we read, instead of just looking at it and going, well, I don't know what this is, we just close it up and assume we can't understand it. Focus on the things you do understand. I think it was Mark Twain that said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. And if you will start reading through the Bible and praying through the Bible and be diligent to go through all of it, the understanding will grow over time, but you'll even be spiritually fed over the things that you don't really understand. God will honor it and God will bless it. In Psalm 119, verses 9 and 10, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, we, boy, we struggle. Even old men struggle with that, right? And here's what the answer is. By guarding it, According to your word, with my whole heart, there's the diligence. I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. And so you find God through his word and you keep your way pure through his word. So read it. It tells us who God is. It tells us how to know him. It tells us what his demands are and it can reprove us. Tell us when we're wrong. It can correct us to tell us which way is the right way. And then it trains us. This is from 2 Timothy 3.16. It trains us. And that tells us how to stay right, how to stay straight in our walk with God. So number three, another thing, the word of God has a purpose. What is that purpose? Well, remember that purpose clause when we had you kind of circle the word that? that the man of God, that a believer, and since this is written to Timothy, let's say this, that a pastor, but I think it could apply to, apply to anyone, that the man of God may be complete and equipped 
for every good work. Psalm 119 again, uh, verse 23 and 24 says, Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight, and they are my counselors. Why do you need a counselor? You need a counselor when you're bouncing something off of somebody and you're saying, am I right to think like this? And the counselor may say, yes, that's a good thing. Or they may say, no, you're, you're off on what you're doing. Sometimes you go to a counselor because you say, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know what to do. And the counselor can give you some advice as to what to do. And this psalmist said that even though there are princes, people in authority, people with the authority to take my life are uh, plotting against me and they're wanting to uh, take my life. What do I do? I meditate on your statutes, he says. Well, what a weird thing to do. What a strange thing to do. You know, a lot of people, they, if they find out they're going to die, then they open up their Bible because, you know, they got to get ready for the afterlife. It's almost like students cramming for an exam at the last minute. And so people go, oh, no, I've got cancer. I better read the Bible. I better start going to church. Well, actually, you need it way before you ever get a cancer diagnosis. And you need church even when things are going good. And we ought to value those things. God has given them to us. But what about those times when you feel like you need to run for your life, like this guy did, where did he go? Where did he go? He didn't go to the Christian bookstore to try to find a good book or a DVD on it. He went to the Word of God. And what is wrong with us that we've got the only book that is inspired by God, the Bible, to help us with our marriages, parenting, to help us handle tough situations, to develop our ethical um, and moral framework, all of these kind of things. And yet we think that a self-help book or a psychologist or somebody like that, there's got to be something more than the Word of God. Shame on us. The Word of God is the ultimate. And this man even said that even while I am running for my life and know that people are trying to kill me, I not only meditate on them, but your testimonies are my delight. I delight in them. It's not like taking terrible tasting medicine. And then he said, they are my counselors. Do you know how much better off this world would be if the word of God were counseling us and counseling our families? Which brings us to number four. This is because the word of God is powerful, powerful. Psalm 119, again, uh, backing up a little to verse seven and eight. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's complete. And how powerful is it? Converting the soul. Nothing else touches the soul like the scripture does. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We've already referenced that. Well, here it says it can convert the soul. Think about the power that is in the word of God. And it goes on to say the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You want to be wise? Fill your mind with the Bible. Verse 8 the statutes of the Lord are right. Want to know what's right or wrong? Find out what God says. And they rejoice the heart. You know, whenever you're just wandering around trying different things, and like the old, um, I think it was Alka-Seltzer commercial, try, you'll like it. 
It's what the world wants you to do. Dabble in this, try a little bit of that, and it brings heartache. We've got more freedom to sin than probably we ever have had in this nation right now. And you know what's happening? The suicide rates, especially among college students, are higher than they've ever been in our nation's history. Because try it, you'll like it, doesn't work. We step in it, we get trapped, we get discouraged, we get disillusioned, and the enemy will tempt you to do something and then mock you when you do. And there's a lot of despair that people have. But the statutes of the Lord are right, they're liberating, And what do they do? They rejoice the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is pure. He never has an ulterior motive. And what do they do? They don't darken anything. Notice what it says. They enlighten the eyes. You'll become a better person, wiser, more discerning about everything in life if you will learn the word of God. And also Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than um, any two-edged sword. How sharp is that? Piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit. You know, um, when you are listening to this lesson, by the time you have it, I will have had open heart surgery and they will have opened me up from the bottom of my neck down here to the top of my stomach and peered around in there where nobody has ever been before, right? And they're going to use a scalpel and I hope it's a good one, hope it's a sharp one and I hope they know what they're doing and everything is real precise. That's, that's the marvel of modern medical technology, isn't it? He uh, told me I do have a chance of death, 1%. Well, that's, that's pretty good, isn't it? 1% chance of stroke, that's pretty good. Uh, that, that's worth it, in other words, right? But God has a scalpel, and it's called the Bible. And you know how sharp and precise it is to divide the soul and the spirit. That is pretty amazing to me. And it goes on to say, and... Um, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know what will happen is I may be living and doing all of the right things and then read the Bible and find out I was doing the right thing with the wrong motive. You didn't see that. Nobody else could see that. I didn't even see that. But when I read the Word of God, God saw it. And God exposes it. And this is the way to get right all the way through. Not just acting right, not just forcing yourself to do right, but actually being changed on the inside so that your very motives are right. David said, let the words of my mouth, that's what everybody hears, and the meditation of my heart, that's what only God sees, be acceptable in your sight O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Ah, that's what we want. And that's what we're looking for. And only the Bible, only the Bible can do that. And so it's the Bible that brings people to Christ, converting the soul. It's not performance. It's not your salesmanship or persuasiveness or anything like that. It's the Bible. So use the scripture to witness And it's the Bible that matures believers. It makes us complete. It makes us mature. In spite of what's going on in the culture, our personal circumstances, or even the enemy's attacks, you can always count on the Word of God. And the sad thing is, 
For so many people, they get in a bind and then they're just opening up the Bible then they're frantically searching through it to find something that relates to their situation. Can I just say this, Christian? If you read the Bible regularly and diligently, what will happen is you will get trapped, you will fall into sin, you will be under attack or whatever the case may be, and the Bible you've already learned will come running to your rescue and it will be the liberating force in your life. So you read the Bible when you don't think you need it, in other words. And the Bible has the power to do what no other book can do, not even a mystical experience or a miracle or anything like that. This is the Word of God. And so we conclude by just saying, if this is true, and it is, why are we not taking full advantage of it to get to know the Word of God? Asking people who know it better than we do, asking them questions. Why are we not reading books about the Bible to help us further and and, uh, more clearly understand the Word of God. Nothing else really matters much, does it? And so that's why I want to encourage you when they said those things about how to read the Word of God, they told you, and I kind of gave you some of the reasons of why uh, you should do those things. If the Bible is everything that I've said it is today, and it is, then you ought to be devouring the Word of God, and I hope you will. Well, thank you for your time, and thank you for your interest, and thank you for um, following along with all of us, and may the Lord bless you, and we'll look forward to seeing you again very, very soon, and I certainly do appreciate your prayers. Thank you.